0: 2014 will go down as the warmest year around the globe in recorded history. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest
1: spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent.
0: The rate that's a great concern. And uh, what do you so, think that rate does to you? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say. The
1: will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hey, hey folks, it's Bron Gresham here, bringing you a vastly different introduction to one I had imagined for this episode. A playful riddle to begin. What do sheep, toilet paper and storytelling have in common? Hmm, you may have already guessed. And I'm going to begin with a story. You see, a few days ago, I had an experience I know many of you will share. I popped to the supermarket, innocently enough to grab a few of the usual suspects, some bananas, milk, baby wipes, only to find myself absolutely aghast at the empty shelves. I had heard this happening on the radio on my way in, but I didn't believe it would happen in my neighbourhood. People buying toilet paper, among other items, to prepare for the worst case of the coronavirus impacting their lives an animation of sorts of our existential crisis. When I gazed at the empty shelf, the message brimming up into my consciousness was this each person having to fend for themselves. And this was an upsetting story for me. Of course I could get it in, you know, our culture that rewards individualism. It's so easy for self-protective mode to dominate. I've had that feeling too. But I worried. If this is happening for the coronavirus, what will happen when people realise the utter scale of the climate change emergency? Are humans destined to only look after themselves? At that point, I knew I had to shift gears. Left unquestioned, this narrative, this story we tell each other, of each person fending for themselves, was a toxic one. So many more deep breaths, I walked outside hoping the spaciousness of air would open new possibilities in my mind. And then I remembered, we do have an alternative story to this one. Recent stories in our collective memory of humans coming together in times of crisis, the bushfires fresh in my mind. Stories of heartfelt responding in times of crisis, of us uniting, putting aside differences, making sacrifices, helping each other. We do have these natural resources of love, compassion, collaboration, courage, that we can choose to activate in times of crisis. So how can we grow this response? One of the psychological and emotional skills that support us to be our best and possibly even grow in the midst of an adverse experience like the coronavirus or climate change. Well, in this episode, I chat with Bob Dophelt, author of Transformational Resilience, How to Use Climate Change and Related Adversities to Learn, Grow and Thrive. If I sound like I'm a little giddy fan at times, it's because I am. Bob is a legend. His full bio is featured in our show notes. But to give you a glimpse, he is trained in counselling psychology, mindfulness and environmental science. And it's this trio of talents and experiences that has accumulated into a very practical framework for resilient growth during climate change adversity. A few years back, he was even honoured by the Corporate Social Responsibility World Congress as one of the world's 50 most talented social innovators. So we are in good company, my friends. So like most everyday conversations, ours begins with some small talk about the weather, which, thanks to climate change, readily moves into a deeper conversation. Enough from me. Sit back and enjoy the ride. Hello, Bob, and welcome to Climactic.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here.
1: And just um, to let the listeners know, where are you you calling in from? I'm calling from Melbourne. Whereabouts are you?
2: I'm in Eugene, Oregon in the U.S. Wow. And that's west coast. That's right. We, uh, Oregon is the state just north of California on the west coast of the U.S.
1: Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. And what's the weather like there at the moment?
2: Well, we have traditionally been a very wet. We're in the Pacific Rainforest, the north northwest rainforest, Oregon, Washington, on the west side. Uh, we're about uh, an hour from the from the Pacific Coast, but we have had it's a little bit better this year, but we're still in a long-term drought. But it used to just pour uh, all winter, and not not so much anymore.
1: And so, does that have impacts on any water restrictions, or any, are you at that level yet, or is there quite an ample water supply for where you're at?
2: Well, the water system is, is, depending on the community you're in, it, it's pretty okay. But what has happened is it has raised, uh, m- many years, it has raised the risk of wildfires, just like in your area, although not, we don't have uh-huh. a brush area, area here. It's significantly increased risk of wildfires, but also the drought has stressed the forest and the, war- the added warmth, temperatures are rising, just like they are in Australia and therefore insects have moved north out of their normal range into the forest uh, because there's no uh, freeze to keep them to kill them uh, in the winter. So we see tremendous forest damage, including on our property, trees just dying because of bark beetles infestation and then the trees are weakened because of drought. And that's just one example. The wildfires uh, are just one example of many changes we're seeing here we, I've been lucky to avoid huge wildfires down in California. You know, they've had them. Uh, we've had a few here, but it hasn't really hit many big communities yet. But uh, barring a miraculous change, uh, that's coming.
1: And just as you were speaking, just that sense of changing landscape. And uh, I felt a sense of loss at that. And I'm very distant from where you are, but can really it really resonates with me, that sense of grief that comes when we lose plants, not just animals or humans, but the the fauna around us.
2: Yeah, that that is a, a, a significant issue. It's not as significant as the, the bigger changes that are happening. But just as an example, even on our, where we live, there's, uh, we've lived here almost 20 years and there's a beautiful old ponderosa pine, which probably is 200 years old. You, it's probably, eight feet not ten feet in diameter and it just last year just up and died within a couple of months mm. um it, it oh, just yes. just the whole thing just died many other wow. ponderosa pines that we have here big big old old trees died and then the uh, we had a huge a record unprecedented snowstorm last year actually about the very same time of year as now where three feet mm. of snow fell and it knocked Uh, many, many of the ponderosa pines just right over because their Mm. their root system had been weakened. Um, And Mm. uh, so we just see the changes uh, in the landscape. Uh, I won't say destruction per se, because it's Mm. new things will grow uh, as a result, but that the change is happening so fast, much faster than Mm. normal Uh, ecological changes would take place that it it's uh it's very sad to see uh, and to experience
1: and just I guess one example of that impact of accumulated stress that then it can take the tip of the iceberg or just one event or one weather event to really unravel things and have a huge impact because of years of other impacts accumulating up because we've got so much to talk about and you are really such an expert in this field around psychosocial uh, skills building and community individual building of resilience. And I was hoping we could just start with reflecting on uh, one of your many activities, which is writing for articles with the Register Guard, which is a newsletter in Oregon. And in one of the articles you shared the reason for why you're focusing on building psychosocial resilience resilience. And you said in it that climate adaption, adaptation efforts have primarily focused on hardening infrastructure and other external physical structures and systems and adapting to natural resources. And after many years, you concluded that these efforts, although very important and essential, have significant limitations. And, and then you began to focus on the psychological components of resilience. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that story to getting to the resilient growth model. And we'll, of course, talk a little bit about the model itself soon, but just wondering, was there a light bulb moment for you or was this a a growing idea for you as well?
2: Yeah, um, that's a good question. Uh, I write for the Register Guard, it's the local newspaper, that daily newspaper, and I write a monthly column, been doing it for for over 10 years now and that started when i used to direct the climate leadership initiative at the university of oregon which is here in eugene and i was when i was writing that i used i knew the editor of the paper uh, the editorial page editor very well and jack wilson asked me to uh, would I write a couple of columns about climate change? Because back then, ten years ago, there wasn't much publicity about it, and so I agreed to do that. And I thought, you know, it would be two or three articles, <laughs> and people really responded very, very positively. And so I wrote another one, and and it sort of continued on. And my wife now calls it my weekend job to uh, continue <laughs> to write these. So, so that's how that came about. But actually, so I uh, the this the work I do now. Came out of my work uh, running, I directed almost for a decade the Climate Leadership Initiative. We were in the Institute for Sustainable Environment at the University of Oregon. And we had a nonprofit, an NGO affiliated with the university. So we had one foot in, one foot out, which was nice. That's the way I've always liked my career. And so we were working around the US, helping local governments, state governments, and nonprofits develop climate action plans. And so we helped the, first of all the state of Oregon, where we are develop its first climate uh, action plan. but we also went to Southeast Florida and organized what we call the Southeast Florida Climate Resiliency Compact, still going on. It has Miami and Dade and Broward county uh, uh, the the largest counties in the in the state of my of Florida uh, got helping them get together to begin to plan for and, and work on sea level rise and increase storm surges. Uh, Saltwater intrusion into freshwater resources, et cetera, and again, down there we were focused on external physical resilience, so to speak, or hardening physical infrastructure, putting in bigger uh, uh, sea walls, putting in pumps to, you know, for 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 flooding, et cetera, et cetera. And then along came, uh, you might remember hearing about this, along came Superstorm Sandy, as it's called up here, mm-hmm. uh, which really hit the northeast part of the U.S., uh, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, but also hit southeast Florida, and people don't realize that. And what we saw then were, uh, as they we saw in the northeast, um, significant mental health problems, severe anxiety, depression, PTSD, uh, and other kinds of mental health problems, complicated grief appeared, as well as psychosocial problems where the, the personal mental health issues began to affect other people. So we saw spousal and child abuse go up, uh, leading to more adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. Uh, alcoholism and drug use went up. And that's what uh, led me to, to just step back and go, wait a second, we're missing something very significant here. So and, and let me say that I'm trained as a counseling psychologist and as an environmental scientist, but I hadn't worked in the counseling psych field for many, many years. And so I didn't even think about or see these issues before that time. And most of the people in the climate field are biologists and uh, engineers and policy folks and they, who have no background like I do and no inclination to that. Um, and so they don't see it at all. So it was, a, it was a, mm. an eye opener for me to realize I was missing something, and I'm trained in it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it seems so obvious in hindsight, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> really. Um, uh,
2: but uh, and and I think it's still prevalent that the climate field is you know people who are trying to help people, motivate uh, folks, and and uh, develop policies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, et cetera, et cetera. But the question kept coming up: What about the people? and uh, so we organized a team of graduate students to uh, do some research and said was this a one-time event the superstorm sandy impacts or is it common well of course we found that it's 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 very common it's what happens after big disasters uh and so that then i put together a team of 12 different people mostly from the us some from canada and some from from europe asking the, the they were mostly resilience building experts trauma treatment people asking them you know, okay, given what that we know what's happening with the Earth's climate system, that things are only going to get worse, what should we do? How can we address these great concerns? And we came up with a strategy. This team helped me develop the resilient growth model and the the focus there, and I can get into the details later, but it's that uh, we know that uh, even with dramatic Re- emission reductions, and of course, right now e- global emissions are still rising, they're not going down. And so this was almost, this was eight years ago we concluded this, but even with even if we had, uh, even if we were successful in, in reducing emissions, the emissions already concentrated in the atmosphere and those that would be generated because of our current infrastructure, the fossil fuel infrastructure around the world, meant that the climate disasters and the toxic stresses and both are equally important. And we'll talk about that in a second. They are going to accelerate for decades, if not a century or more. And so the question for our team was, what do we do about that? And we realized that we could not, uh, uh, the, the standard approach, which still dominates in many places is To do mental health first aid in the middle of a disaster and then hope that the people that are are still in mental health first aid let me back up simply tries to stabilize people during and immediately after a disaster and they hopefully they return to they bounce back to some semblance of what they were before the disaster
1: Mm, it's really about re-establishing that sense of safety and providing information and practical practical supports and engaging the natural resources that they already have, isn't it? It's not kind of doing therapy in the, in the midst of the crisis. It's just really tending to basic needs.
2: Yeah, it's stabilization uh, during, during, yeah. The, during the disaster. And the problem with that, we realized, was that most of many of the mental health and psychosocial problems emerge three to six months or more after people experience one of these kinds of disasters. It depends on the intensity of the experience, how, how, what, how they are affected or their family and their loved one, their community is affected. And uh, and the, the, the mental health first aid does not help three to six months afterwards, obviously, because they're already gone. Those programs are already gone for the most part. But the other thing we began to realize is that, uh, and we're now seeing it, and I think Australia is seeing it, unfortunately, the, the very clearly is that most of the treatment programs we've had for helping pe- to help people with these kinds of disasters were set up to help people with single event disasters that ended and gave people time to recover. But as the climate crisis, the climate emergency accelerates, what we're seeing already in many parts of the world are repetitive, intense, intersectional, as we call it, they affect each other and cumulative traumas that basically doesn't give people time to recover, they're continuous traumas, and it's much more difficult to assist people with that kind of of mental health challenge and psychosocial challenge. And in fact, very little research has come up with some good solutions, except somehow provide folks with safety, a safe haven of some kind, where they can find time to recover but if, and, and nurture the, themselves. But if, if, the, if the disasters continue and but it, a disaster happens and then it's followed by this long period of toxic stress, meaning persistent, overwhelming stress, you lost your job, how do you get an income? You know, your, your friends and family have moved or, or even some have been injured or lost. Uh, you have all these other stresses. So there is trying to help people that don't have much time to recover is very, very difficult. But the point of what I'm getting at is we, that this team, we said decided we have to focus on prevention, getting skills into everyone's hands, teaching skills, help before the disasters as much as we can, because we're simply not going to be able to assist everybody that is impacted as the climate crisis.
1: And I think just to, you know, build on that point before we move into the resilient growth model, because I know a lot of people are really you know, they're thirsty for these skills, is just that point around what you call mental first aid. We often call psychological first aid here. And one of the most protective factors for people's sense of recovery or regrounding or getting back on their feet is the social connection and the social supports. And I guess when it, when it, and that is, like you said, for potentially traumatic events that are typically just impacting that individual or a small group, but what, what happens when it impacts the whole community, when the people that Um, we're reaching out to for those social supports are also affected by the traumatic event. And I think that's what brings such a layer of complexity into it, that, you know, the people that we're leaning on, that is typically the most protective factor for supporting recovery. They're also going through the journey as well, potentially.
2: That's exactly right. And as the climate emergency accelerates, we'll see more and more large scale disasters, if you will, wildfires being one. Uh, so the, the often your social support networks are fragmented. Sometimes people are split up and you can't even find each other for a long period of time. And sometimes people are lost. People die or seriously injured. So they're not there. But the other side of that is that the emergency responders are also impacted. So the people who are supposed to be helping run mental health or psychological first aid programs, they are also impacted and are trying to keep their own family safe and connect with their social support network. And we're seeing that in many, many places here in in, in North America where PTSD is showing up even worse in the emergency responders than in in some cases and in the community, uh, which is pretty common. Uh, so uh, these are all challenges we really need to think we, we decided that the traditional way we have approached preparing for uh, disasters is just not sufficient given what's coming with climate change
1: absolutely and and you know what I feel like this is such a great window of opportunity because over even just over the past ten years we've we're much more inclined to speak about our emotions as this kind of revolution of articles and people talking in the media about emotions of anxiety, depression. We're much more attuned to as a community and certainly as the health services to the impacts for first responders, for emergency responders and the need to tend to health promotion and mental health prevention. And I feel like because of that, people are speaking about their feelings a lot more publicly and speaking to often the challenge of their feelings. And so I feel like the next chapter is going to be where the work that you know, you're know you doing and other people are doing in various ways around how you meet those emotions, how you meet those psychological challenges and
0: social challenges
1: skillfully.
0: Now it's time for Climactic Community Corner where we play voice messages sent to us on Facebook. We're opening up this space for the community to share events, news, thoughts, feelings, all sorts. If you've got a message to share, just send it to us at Climactic Show on Facebook or hello at climactic.fm.
2: Hi, this is Holly Hammond, director of the Commons Social Change Library with a resource recommendation for climate activists. Facing the reality of the climate crisis can be profoundly psychologically and emotionally challenging. Taking action collectively
0: can be balm for our sore souls, but it's also important to access support and information on this topic. The Commons Library has a treasure trove of wellbeing
2: resources,
0: including some excellent videos from regular climactic contributor and host Bronwyn Gresham. They include emotional health and our response to a changing climate,
2: and overcoming the top three challenges to self-care. Browse the wellbeing topic on
0: commonslibrary.org or type Bronwyn into the search bar. The Commons is your one-stop shop for resources for community
2: action.
1: I feel like that's the next chapter of the story that we need to get to quickly.
2: Well, I would agree that uh, I think and that it's, uh, a a real urgent need to help people learn how to manage the emotions that occur. And, and the, well, we can get into this now if you want in the resilient world. Yeah, let's get into it. Absolutely. So one, one point to think about is what is trauma? What does that mean and how is it created? And from our perspective, the way we come from it is, or the way we look at it is trauma is an event that just creates a, a, a very intense and usually very rapid feeling of helplessness. And uh, you feel overwhelmed. You uh, Sometimes you feel your life is threatened. Other times there's been, a I can't remember her name, but she, I, I like the way she described it. There's big T traumas and there's little T traumas. The big T, tra- ah. big t traumas are the life-threatening situations, which a disaster can do. Uh, little t traumas might not threaten your life, but they're still overwhelming. And there's, there's, I think it's another term for toxic stress, as we call it here. And, uh, and both of those make you feel like you can't control what's happening to you. Uh, you don't know what's what's going on. And your sense of meaning in the world consequently becomes shattered. How you see the world, how you see yourself falls apart or, or is threatened to do that. And so it causes, uh, it, it triggers the sympathetic to be, you know, to get into the body, it really ends up affecting the nervous system in our bodies. And so what happens is the sympathetic nervous system gets activated and it's a good thing that that happens because that is what sets us up to either fight back or uh, flee the scene. But if it's overwhelming or we don't feel we have any opportunity to fight or flee, we can end up freezing. Uh, uh, And again, that's a good response. That's how humans have protected themselves and become the dominant large mammal on earth. But if it, if you, if it continues and you end up in height, always hyper aroused, always in this fight or flight thing, or if you end up always in a freeze response, it creates the depression, the anxiety, et cetera, then both of those are really where the trauma shows up, and you end up either harming yourself in some way or harming others or harming the natural environment worse. And that's one of the things we see that we're also trying to help people realize that in order and as people try to protect themselves, we're making the climate crisis worse with the actions we take.
1: And there's such um, challenging spaces like feeling stuck or getting stuck in the the helplessness and the despair. And same with that constant hypervigilance or constant on edge, whether it's about from a direct experience of extreme weather or from just those indirect kind of thinking about the future and what it's like currently for people going through the impacts of climate change. And I really like how you clarified how that emotion of fear that so often comes with when we're impacted by big t or little t trauma that you know the primary primary function of that is to motivate us to act and that requires us to have some level of skill to be with that emotion and find ways of channeling it and when we don't have those skills we can get really stuck or feel overwhelmed for long periods of time and that's when you know things become we become really ineffective in life it impacts our relationships work, etc. So could you tell us a little bit about some of those skills that that do help? And I guess at the, I'm thinking of the presencing skills that you speak to in your resilient growth model. And I wonder if this is a good time to, to
2: talk to them. Sure. Absolutely. Well, so again, from what, the way we approach it, and I think many, many people in this field would would agree that all of us go up and down in life, and through our emotions and our, our our feelings. Sometimes we're up, sometimes we're down. But we're norm. You know, most of us normally are able to sort of manage, think things through, make wise and skillful decisions. And it's when we have one of those uh, these big emergency events, like a disaster or a trigger of some kind that reminds us of a previous trauma, that we get pushed outside of what we call the resilient growth zone which is outside of this area that we go up and down in, but we manage very, very well, and we can get stuck either in the high zone, in this arousal, the hyperarousal, or in the low zone, this freeze where you get depression and uh, mood swings, et cetera. So the first step that, to us in helping people deal with the climate emergency is to learn skills to uh, what we call presencing skills. They're really self-regulation skills skills, simple, self-administrable age, demographically and culturally appropriate skills to help people regulate their nervous system, which really means to activate the sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system, which moderates the sympathetic nervous system, the two parts of the autonomic nervous system. We wanna sort of ramp ourselves down back into that resilient growth zone, if you will, where you can manage things and there's uh, three different, and and let me say that the resilient growth model is a framework for doing this. It's not a treatment model per se because there's a number of different skills that uh, different cultures would use, different age uh, groups would would find appropriate. But the first step is to just literally try to regulate your nervous system. So you might want to use breath-based skills. Yeah, uh, uh, controlled breathing, taking a long breath, counting up to five, breathing out again, uh, for a count longer than five. That's just one example of a breath-based skill. But other some people don't resonate with that. So there's also body-based skills, uh, semantic skills, as we call them. So you could, uh, we we often teach people how to just sense, to scan their body and sense the. Uh, sensations that they feel, that the, the pleasant sensations, t- nice tingling or warmth, neutral places where they might not feel anything in their body, and also unpleasant sensations. In fact, that's where our, our attention normally gets drawn to, is those unpleasant sensations. And then when you get a, a drawn to the unpleasant sensations, just deliberately shift your attention back to a place in your body that feels pleasant or neutral. And what you're doing there, the reason we call it presencing is first of all, you're no longer thinking about what happened in the past or what might happen in the future. You're right in your body right now. You're in the present and that's going to, just by doing that, you're going to activate the parasympathetic nervous system and calm and soothe the body. That's just one example. But there's also culturally based skills to do that, dancing together, meals together, getting exercise uh, helps with that, doing yoga, there's many, many uh, skills that, that uh, help you regulate your nervous system. But just as importantly, so that's one step, and uh, the, just as importantly is to remember that you have skills and resources that you can reach out to and use to help you stay calm, and calm your mind and body in the midst of adversity. So helping people become conscious of the skills they have, are they able to be assertive? Can they ask people for help when they need it? Uh, uh, Lots of different skills like that and people, we, we have a little exercise we do called the circles of support that we actually have people write down the skills they have. Mm, that is one of my favorites, by the way. Bob. Oh, go ahead. That's great. Uh, another uh, skill, though, is uh, another resource is, just as we were talking about, our social support networks. Who are the people that really care about us and will give us unconditional support or practical assistance when we need it? And uh, But also then there's ecological supports. And what we mean by that is being in nature or often just even viewing nature tends to calm our mind and body and emotions.
1: Mm, And if you can't be in nature, transporting yourself through imagination, I'm often imagining myself when I'm trying to get to sleep, for instance, next to
2: a riverbank or warmth on the beach. Absolutely. Uh, Even just seeing pictures of it. Many hospitals now have pictures of the outdoors of nature in the the hospital rooms because they know It has an effect on people.
1: And so would it be fair to say that all of these skills um, together um fundamentally uh forming a relationship with our experience of the nervous system your nervous system is really activated it's frightened it's aroused it's kind of ready for fight or flight or freeze and really these skills are about saying hey you you know you've got agency here and here we need to soothe and calm you so that we can figure out what to do from here
2: that's exactly right that you know for many Place, especially in Western societies, the the view for a hundred years or more was that people can't change the way they think and respond to the world. But, um, especially true in North America, but neuroplasticity, so to speak, has proven that wrong. The study of the nervous system, the study of how the mind works over the last 10 to 15 years, has clearly shown that that's inaccurate, that with practice, on different kinds of skills, we actually can physically change the way our brains are structured and function. And so we have the ability to regulate our emotions uh, and our reactions. And that, that starts with, by the way, let me back up and say before we even get into skills, we like to teach people of what we've been talking about. You, call, you can call it, help them become trauma informed. But what it means is, help them understand that their reaction, their stress-based reaction, is actually a natural built-in reaction and it has to do with ke- neurochemicals being released into their bloodstream by part of their brain that senses a threat. And then helping them notice the symptoms of that kind of stress in their body. That alone, we have found in our work in the, the in communities, et cetera, That alone goes a long way in helping people calm their mind and body and emotions when they're, because they now, wait a second, there's not something wrong with me. I'm not freaking out, but I'm now noticing that I'm distressed. Okay, what can I start to do about it?
1: Absolutely, that information, core basic fundamental mental health literacy just helps in with the self-awareness piece. And once we're self-aware, that's kind of like the door is open for different ways of responding. That's
2: right, that's right.
1: One of the um, best examples I had more recently was when I went to the dentist and I really, it's a a trigger for me and not a huge fan of going to the dentist and all the pain and the noise, etc. but keeping in mind the presencing skills, I began to bring my attention to my feet, which the dentist isn't impacting my feet. And my feet were very grounding and warm and very kind of neutral really in sensation and just allowing my mind to be aware of the dentist but also focus on a part of my body that wasn't impacted by the pain enabled me to cope with that moment in a much more effective and calming way in fact the dentist said you're the most relaxed patient i've ever had (laughs) it was nice to lie down to i must admit being a mother of two Uh, but (laughs) i think that's you know these skills are everyday skills and i think weaving them in and practicing them every day to strengthen them so that when we really need them, they'll show up, is so important.
2: Yeah, especially because this we're in the midst of a civilization-changing event. People, we have to get our heads around what's happening, that everyone is going to need those kinds of skills, and there's many more we'll talk, we can talk about if we have time here, but um, that uh, what, the way we say it is, and we call it resilience, education, and skills training, should become universal now meaning, at least in uh, in, in uh, many so, communities, everyone learns how to read and write, everyone should learn these kinds of skills and this kind of information, because we're all going to need it.
1: Absolutely. When you just said, we are facing a civilization changing event, it really brought back to me the reality that for a lot of the people that i'm seeing in clinical practice as a psychologist um, and also seeing in in workshops that we run is just that really significant grappling of what how future is changing and what it will entail and so these are for people who are really accepting the the climate change reality and trying to engage in What they're, you know, anticipating it to be like, and it's really shaking their core and shaking their sense of purpose in life. And I wondered if that might be a good segue into thinking about the other skill sets around purposing and, and meaning making and how those skills might support the more kind of, I guess, existential crisis that many people are faced with when they, you know, really understand what's happening in the world.
2: Yeah, and th- 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 you're absolutely right. So when we first began to dive into these issues seven, eight years ago, we you know, first focused on the presencing skills, the self-regulation skills. And then it became very clear that, that those skills are vital, but not enough. They're insufficient because of the fact that we're in a civilization changing event. So we ha- people have to decide how they want to live their life with meaning and pride and dignity in the midst of these adversities and toxic stresses that are going to continue to get worse and that's what we call purposing what what is your purpose in life and uh, one of the way one of the first keys in purposing is to try to and you can't do this unless you've calmed your mind and body uh, and emotions sufficiently is to try to turn towards the adversity you experience, turn towards the wildfires and the loss of property, homes, injuries uh, to loved ones, etc. And ask, what can I learn about it, learn from it, about myself, about the world around me, about the way I've lived, about the way our community has operated. So that's the first step is really trying to learn and find meaning in it. Oh, I get it. The fact that we have use this kind of material and and generate this kind of energy has produced these kinds of problems. Just that simple learning is helpful. And then the second step is to then say, okay, what values do I want to live by in the midst of this kind of uh, emergency? Uh, And there's a number, again, a number of different ways you can help people tap into the core values they want to live by. We ask people to, answer the miracle question, which is basically you go to sleep at night and you, and in the middle of the night, you suddenly get the capacity to, to uh, respond in the midst of adversity in the ideal way you'd like, that gives you pride and dignity in your life. It um, makes you feel like you have hope and purpose. You wake up in the morning and wow, you still have those skills. Now, is there a you can can you go back and think about an an a, a adverse experience you just had? If you lived those values out in that situation, would there be something different you would have done? And or is there a way to do it differently in the future? And then and there's other ways you can get at that. It also, there's a simple way with some, with, especially with kids. What we often just uh, in a, in a different way we we have we just give them a list of different values and say which are important to you and ask them to try to come up with the three most important values and then say, how do you follow those when you're, you're really distressed? So, I mean, there's lots of, again, it's a framework. It's not a specific. Sort of, mountain.
1: Absolutely. But sort of like that positive psychology principle of, uh, or question, you know, how do I show up as my best self with my, you know, my own personality, my quirks, my strengths, when things are at their
2: worst. That's exactly right.
1: Oh, well, before you hit the third component, just one of the questions I had when we were thinking about the that, that connecting with what have I learned through this or what has what it revealed about life or others or the environment or myself, my mind instantly went to people who struggle to, to engage or to find to do that in a way that's beneficial to them. And for some reason, I just had someone in my mind come up who would be in the space and, and maybe this is linking back to the the need for the presencing skills first but their response might be something more despondent and pessimistic like like you know well i've learned that humans are cruel and that our political systems you know a waste of time or that there's no hope or you know i could put some swear words in there but you get the picture like what what's the advice for people who are kind of is that indicating that they're kind of stuck at that point?
2: Well, first of all, it's a completely understandable feeling in today's day yeah. and age. It's a pretty uh, difficult time for, for many, many of us. And, uh, but I do think first the presencing skills really are important, but then also these purposing skills are critical, uh, because, and, and the, the final skill is, how do you find hope in the midst of adversities yeah. like this? And I think really helping people tap into uh, some form of inspiration, and it, it's a it, and helping people find hope really involves first trying to have them identify vision of something they want to create or move towards, uh, and develop an initial kind of first steps for how they can do that, and a commitment to do that with some other people, especially. And so I think help, engaging people in uh, in actions uh, in, uh, can help overcome that uh, serious depression and sense of hopelessness that exists in, among many people. Uh, I think it's just critical to, uh, to get involved. And One of the ways we do it, for example, is uh, we ask people to, even if they're at a workshop, we take a break. We say, go out and do something during the break for someone else that they didn't expect And that's very simple. So somebody drops a pencil or a piece of paper on the floor and they pick it up for them and give it back to them. You open the door for an elderly person uh, or whatever, and you let you help them go through. And then we ask them to come back and we talk about what did you feel like when you did something for someone else without being asked? And invariably people say, boy, you know, I did, I felt good about myself. And what, what we're doing then is by engaging people in those, what you call pro-social activities, it doesn't have to be anything great. It's opening the door, you know, helping somebody else, helping animals, then uh, planting trees. Uh, Then what it, uh, from again, going back to the biology and the nervous system, you're actually releasing oxytocins into the nervous system which really helps us feel good, which makes us wanna do more of it, which releases more oxytocin. We get this virtuous cycle, as we call it, the oxytocin virtuous cycle. So the more we can engage people to work together on positive things, they can be very small, helping other people, helping the natural environment, whatever, I think the more hope we establish. And the other thing to keep in mind is, at least my perspective, is that systems, I I was initially trained in systems dynamics, uh, and what I learned is most, both physical and social and ecological systems also, are set up to maintain homeostasis. That is to say, they're structured to keep the system going as it's going, and they push back hardest when the system is nearing a change. And to keep that in mind, that it, it seems like we can't do anything now. We can't make any positive changes. And then suddenly, boom, things might change that we had no, could not imagine happening. I don't know if that will happen, but I think there's a very good likelihood that it will, only because look at history and we've seen That's been the history of mankind.
1: And actually, I think I remember listening to a talk that you gave or perhaps an article that you wrote in in, I guess, giving some sense of meaning or hope when I think it was when Donald Trump got elected. And you were saying something along those lines of, you know, this is a sign that we're at that absolute edge and it's at the edge where systems transform or change. That gave me a lot of hope at the time that that kind of re-attribution or kind of, you know, reframing what could potentially, we could get really stuck on how horrible things can be, but reframing it in that way just gave me a completely different perspective.
2: Yeah. And I don't mean to suggest that it's not going to be very, very difficult. Systems are trying to hang on as much as they can, uh, as long as they can. So it's going to be, because of that, there's even going to be more disasters. So uh, don't, we, we just can't downplay that, but that. Change is possible, it has always happened, but it does require the West to get out of business as usual and do these pro-social activities with other people. We will feel better ourselves, and as a sidebar almost, we help other people and really begin to push for change. The climate denial that we see, and many people, I've gone in and talked with groups that are really into that, and what I sense is it's really the same dynamic going on within many of them, not all of them, um, but many of them that they sense a big change is coming and they are fighting as hard as they can to prevent it because they're frightened. They're very frightened. What does it mean for, for, for my lifestyle? What does it mean for all the things I've done and said in the past, etc.? cetera? Uh, and again, systems push back hardest when they're nearing change. So I think we just have to stay at it and keep uh, help help ourselves and stay together and help other people and see what happens.
1: Yeah, and help them come on board and not ridicule people if they change their minds on climate change or say I made a mistake for the last 20 years. I'm sorry. Yeah, you know, that's that's the risk I feel people don't change because they're so fearful of public humiliation and ridicule and further division. And I think, oh, I hope that skills like this, you know, increase our receptiveness for bringing people along and working on the now and not getting too caught up in punishing for past behaviors.
2: Yeah, we I don't know if they exi- exist down in, in uh, Australia, but here there's you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and where people can go and deal with these so we need a climate denial anonymous
1: um yeah absolutely well there you go bob next project getting lined up (laughs) i know we've got to finish up but I i would really love to hear what keeps you inspired as a human being because i can imagine all of this work has probably significantly transformed your life path yeah wondering if you could speak to that or share a little bit about for you as a human being right right here and what what's keeping you inspired and what what drives you?
2: Well, I think I shared some of that 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 I, I really see the possibility of major change through a lot of chaos. However, but you know we just have to keep at it. I've been involved with you know at least in the U.S. with politics for most of my career, and in some way, and I've seen things happen out of the blue. So that um, that were very positive in, in the would seem like the worst of times. Uh, but I also, you know, that's where I'm going in a few minutes. Uh, we have a very strong social support network, of friends who we just get together with all the time and laugh and play. And uh, we are, my wife and I are outdoors people. We do lots of hiking and camping and, and getting outdoors and do that. And also, I'm I'm a, a almost 69 years old now, but uh, I still play basketball at our local YMCA uh, three days a week with a bunch of guys Great. who we've been playing with for 30 years. <laughs> um, we used oh. to actually be decent, but uh, now we, it's just fun to get together with them. we go out to lunches so <laughs> uh, just getting the exercise and getting being with my friends and uh, giving each other you know whatever <laughs> we give it, it it's a lot of uh, giving it to each other. Um, but-
1: that's play though, isn't it? It's so invigorating and that's um. That will just increase our longevity, won't it, and our, our sense of fun and nourishment in life through play. We know that's so important. Oh, so good to hear. I'm so stoked to hear that you've been playing basketball for the same, with the same people for 30 years. That's incredible.
2: We're, we're, we're still going up and down the court. I can't say we're, it probably is pushing it to say we're actually playing basketball, but that's... <laughs>
1: <laughs> Look, you, you're dribbling, but you're dribbling balls at least. We're definitely dribbling,
2: <laughs> so love <them>, of so. us <laughs>
1: Well, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm not sure if there's anything or any other parting words you'd like to share with our audience here at Climactic before we finish up. We've covered so much ground and I can sense that there was so many, so much richness there that uh, I'll put a lot of links in the show notes for people to continue exploring a lot of those ideas and practices. Is there anything that you'd like to end on or anything that you really wanted to share that we haven't? covered today.
2: Yeah, I think one of the questions is how do you implement these skills um, around this information? And what I would encourage people to start thinking about is to form local resilience councils or local resilience coordinating groups where key organizational leaders and uh, neighborhood leaders come together and on a regular basis and begin to assess the level of resilience in their in their neighborhood or their community, to look at the social narratives that dominate their community or their neighborhood. What do people hear about how to respond to adversity? And then jointly together begin to expand or strengthen the existing resilience building initiatives that might happen. Schools might be teaching some of these skills, uh, other places teaching them, and launch new ones so that Everyone gets this kind of information and learns these skills in rather, rather short order. So I think, and this is a variation of the International Agency Standing Committee, the UN Committee on, Emerge, on Mental Health and Psychoso- how to respond to mental health and psychosocial emergency, calls for the organization of these kinds of committees, these these, these uh, coordinating groups when a disaster occurs to make sure that the organiz- all the social service organizations are coordinating, but we know they're going to occur everywhere now, so we should set up these kind of resilience coordinating councils now before, I mean, in your case, they've already happened, the wildfires, but let's set them up in every community in every neighborhood now and get people involved with uh, taking ownership for building resilience building transformational resilience in their neighborhood and in their community because it takes a while to get these skills out there. But I think we'll we'll find a tremendous change happen as these kinds of local groups come together to begin to promote and foster resilience.
1: That sounds uh, like incredibly essential and very strategic approach. I love it. If there were local groups who would like to set up coordinating councils, are are there any resources that, uh, because I know that you've set up an international global network for more for mental health or other professionals, I'm wondering if it's just kind of locals getting together to begin this journey, are there resources or kind of guidelines or roadmaps that uh, they could follow or is it a bit more organic than that? At this stage,
2: no. Yeah, we can send uh, information, but they can look at the the UN uh, interagency standing committee's uh, guidelines. They they provide a good uh-huh. gu- set of guidelines. But there's and we have resources for that too. Uh, we're not making this up. That there's lots of these kinds of groups out there. They're they're called different things, and you don't have to call it what we call it, a resilience coordinating council, uh-huh. and call it whatever you want. But um, I think just uh, something that that has an overarching group of uh, respected leaders from the community, not only mental health and social service, but faith leaders, spirituality leaders, emergency management, uh, business leaders, education leaders, get all those folks together and say, how do we begin to strengthen uh, resilience in our community or in our, our neighborhood? Um, and then get local governments or others to try to fund that, you know, to support, provide some support for those. Uh, but again, if anybody wants information, we can provide some uh, uh, more information about it.
1: Beautiful. I'll provide some um, links in the show notes. Thank you so much, Bob. Uh, What a powerful message to end on. And uh, I'm really sure that there will be listeners out there who will feel inspired and begin looking into this. So thank you so much
2: for that. My pleasure. Good luck to everybody down there in in Australia. Thank you so much, Bob. Take care.
0: Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening. And from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work. And take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective.